Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 114. This episode is with the head of sports science and medicine at Ipswich Town, Jimmy Reynolds. So Jimmy came on to talk about the reality of working in academy football. So he spoke about the effect of limited investment, but also the catchment area that they're in. So they're not surrounded by many other clubs. He spoke about some positives and negatives of of that. We spoke about the importance of understanding training loads and injury risks and how this impacts periodization. We spoke about his physical performance philosophy. And then we also touched on um, Jimmy working in football, but also having a family, which I think was a really important topic and a lot that a lot of people want to listen to. Um, and you'll either be able to relate if that's currently you or if it's something that you're looking to do in the future. I think there's some great advice from Jimmy. And then also working in football, but running a private practice as well. So Jimmy runs a private physio practice, Alpha Physio. And so he talked about how that works with his full-time role as well. So it's great chatting to Jimmy. And big thank you to Mark Armitage for putting us in touch um, and recommending Jimmy for the podcast. I appreciate Mark's um, advice and call on this one. So I hope you enjoy the episode with Jimmy. I just wanted to also just give a little heads up. I, I mentioned in a couple of previous podcasts that Recently, I did a webinar, which was the top 10 takeaways from the first 100 episodes of the podcast. So this is available on our online community. So community members will be able to log in and watch that webinar. But for anyone that's listening to this podcast, if you're not a community member, then if you do want to have a listen to that webinar, I will send it over to you. So if you drop us an email, which is mail at footballfitfed.com, And just with the uh, subject line, Webinar 100, and we will send you the link so you can have a little listen back to that. So I just discussed my top 10 takeaways and tie it in with loads of the different episodes from the first 100 episodes of the podcast. So it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts on that one, because I'm sure some of the takeaways are similar, but I'm sure you have some others as well. Um, So yeah, if you want to have a, a watch and a listen to that, please reach out and I'll send you the link so you can go and give that a watch. But I hope you enjoy episode 114. It was great to chat to Jimmy and here is the episode. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 114. I'm joined today by the head of sports science and medicine at Ipswich Town, Jimmy Reynolds. So Jimmy, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be on. Now, this has been a long time coming, this one. We were just talking about a, a mutual mutual friend in Mark Armitage has been nagging the both of us to get this done. So we're finally going to please him and get it recorded. So thanks to Mark for the recommendation of yourself. And uh, thank you to you for giving up your time for coming on, mate. No idea why he's recommended me, but no, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. And it's, it's been nice to see, obviously, through this difficult period, uh, the, 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 the podcast is, is coming out regularly. It's, it's, there's some great people on it. And uh, I'm, I'm humbled to be part of it, put it that way. Brilliant. No, it's great to have you on. So do you want to do you want to kick us off? And I've said this on a numerous episodes before. Our conversation before, before we started recording, should have been recorded because we've touched on loads of stuff already. But let's get into the actual podcast now. Just take us through your background. Let's let's hear about your background and what led you up to your role. 
Okay, so um, going right back to the beginning, I'm uh, a child physiotherapist. So uh, back in 2004, I trained as a physiotherapist through the University of Hertfordshire. Um, and uh, I, for me, I always had a fascination with the human body and uh, physiotherapy was something that I was always interested in from a very early age, having had some as a, as a child. Um, and uh, the ironic thing is, uh, I never said I'd work in football. Um, I loved football. And through my young physiotherapy career, I, I did uh, as a student, I worked with Manchester City, um, got some experience there. When I qualified, I worked in the NHS as a physiotherapist and I had some experience at Crystal Palace as well. Um, but I specialized as a, a neuromuscular physiotherapist and I progressed my way in the NHS. I was really fortunate as a young physiotherapist to be exposed to some really good uh, physiotherapy practitioners, some real good specialists uh, and a lot of fantastic colleagues. And interestingly, as a, as a physiotherapist, I was interested in chronic low back pain. So I was, I was almost so far away from athletes. Um, I was you know, really interested in dealing with, with people with uh, 10, 15, 20 years worth of back pain, um, the psychosocial effects of it, changing their pain and their movement behaviors. Um, but a lot on the side, I always did a little bit of football work. I obviously love football. So back in 2008, I started working with Ipswich Town uh, as a, as a part-time physiotherapist. And as I said, I never said I'd work in football, um, but I fell into it. Um, I was offered a, a position here um, way over 10 years ago and I, and I fell into it and I thought to myself, well, if, if the demands of football are too much, I'll, I'll leave. Um, but over 10 years down the line, I'm still here. So that obviously says a lot for, for the environment. Um, so for me, as, as, I, as I shifted my focus into working with, with football players and athletes, uh, you, you just get dragged into it and you, you start working with more and more people. You start working with, with some fantastic players and some, uh, some high level staff in terms of surgeons, you know, world leading surgeons, and you just get dragged into the, the fun of it really. Um, so I started off as a physiotherapist in the uh, town with the, with the academy and, and uh, over the years I've progressed to being head of sports science and, and medicine um, for the academy. So, uh, and I was part of the academy that, you know, this was pre-treble P, you know, we were employed to produce players for our first team. That, that is what we, we were there for. And, and E-treble P came around and was fantastic in one sense, in the sense that it allowed us to, to invest in more staff, more physios, more strength and conditioning coaches, psychologists, nutritionists. And it gave us a platform to be able to do that. Um, but obviously the recategorization uh, occurred as well. And what we did find is that we uh, were in a situation where we became a category two academy because of the club's finances. So we were, as a club were then positioned in a, a slightly different uh, way. Our, our finances were slightly less. So we had to think differently. So over the years, we've, we've invested uh, in, in certain areas of the football club and we've, we've uh, had to think differently and uh, think outside the box to be able to progress uh, the sports science and medicine department with perhaps less funding. But uh, it's been a really enjoyable time for me. Um, as an academy, we've, we consistently uh, produce young professionals into the, the senior game. And it's something that we've got a history of doing. Uh, and it's something that as a club, we, we really enjoy. Um, and then, so I've been doing that for, for over 10 years now. And uh, in the last year, I've also on the side, uh, myself and my wife, who's Lindsay, who's also a physiotherapist, have, have started a, a private physiotherapy practice called Alpha Physiotherapy, which is based in Ipswich. Um, and that's been a really enjoyable challenge for the both of us. 
alongside working full-time in football as well. So um, it's been a challenge and it's been uh, a really steep learning curve. You know, why we decided to, to open a business and then uh, COVID come along and hit us, you know, we'll never know. But it's been a really good challenge for us to think outside the box. Um, and it's a, a really enjoyable thing for me. I'm now uh, seeing you know, some footballers outside of, of Ipswich Town in that business, but also a lot of other sports and a lot of other clientele. So we're seeing a complete host of different problems in, the, in that business, which is fantastic for us. So um, that, that's kind of me in a nutshell. No, brilliant. And just before, because we'll go into a little bit on the private practice as well, because it was interesting how you guys have sort of shifted in these times and the challenges of this year. But I was going to ask, what going back to where you said about not intending to be in football, then you got into football and then you sort of, you got involved with it, you wanted to stay involved. What do you think that hook was? Do you think it was the performance side possibly that you preparing players to perform, you're getting through the, the academy to the first team? What do you think it was that kept you there? Um, I, th I think for me, what I found over the time is that when you first come into the environment, um, you start working with a group of players. And, and I think every practitioner of strength and conditioning, sports science, physiotherapist will relate to this. Often when you first join, your first group of players is kind of is very memorable for you. Um, and I worked with a group of players that were, that, were, that, were, that were really good. And, and that kind of hooked you into it. You developed a rapport with these players that wasn't just about me, say, being a physio and making sure they were fit and healthy. You, you were developing them as a person and, and you were part of their journey. And I think that's, that's the hook that got me is that over the years, um, you see these players develop as not only players, but as people. And over the years, I think as, as many people do, they recognize that our part in that is to, to develop them as a person. And I think for me, that was part of it. Mm. So, that was a big pull. Also, you just start going deeper and deeper. As your knowledge builds, you started to venture into different areas of strength and conditioning in sports science, in nutrition, in psychology. And you start developing. You think, actually, when I look back now on players five years ago, could I have done thing, things better? So it was almost like a revolve. Every season was like a, a revolving door of improvement. And you wanted to change. You wanted to develop. And you wanted to change what you're delivering to the players. You wanted to change how the program was being run. You wanted to try new things. Um, and I, probably for me, that, that was the biggest hook was you, we were then able to implement things that perhaps weren't done before and you just develop and develop. And, and it was this, this continuous develop. That's probably what it was for me. Um, and that's, that's partly what it still is now is that actually we, we're constantly trying to develop the players. Um, I'm lucky enough that I've been in football long enough now to... Uh, the players that I first work with now, some of them are starting to retire now. That's, mm. that's the frightening prospect is that I've, I've been in football that long. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like I've been in football that long. But these players, uh, you know, we've got a mixture of players that have gone on to have very successful careers in the, the professional football world. We've also got players that have gone on to have incredibly successful careers outside of football mm -hmm. um, and have moved on to um, working in America and, uh, Wall Street and you know these highly successful people so we often then get messages from these books we keep in contact with them saying they have fond memories of their time here and they've, they've taken the principles of what they've learned as a young person and developed themselves uh, into an adult into being parents and, you know and I, I for me that's that's a huge pull of academy football and I I'd we try to encourage with new staff and new members of uh, uh, students coming through that 
you're part of their journey. And whilst it is also a journey for you, you're part of their journey. So don't see yourself as I want to work in academy football because I want to work in first team football. See yourself actually developing people. Mm. And for me, that goes back to being a physiotherapist. When, As a physiotherapist, when someone sits down with you and they go, I'm in trouble, I've got some, some really nagging pain and I need to get rid of this, you, you're becoming part of their journey. So it all kind of links together for me. The, you, you take someone, you get to know them, you build a rapport with them and, and you develop them as well as you and you progress. So that for me, that's probably a, a big reason as to why I stayed in football. Um, and uh, much like many people in the east of England, there's not many clubs around us. So we tend to stay in our, our clubs, really. So I've been in, I'm a one club man, effectively. I've been at Ipswich Town for way over 10 years now. Um, and, you know, having a family locally, having everything based around this area, it's, it's unlikely that I'm going to suddenly move to a different club very easily. So you then kind of get sucked into being really part of the club and you, you develop the club uh, alongside us trying to develop you. So, yeah, it's, it's it, as I say, I never wanted to work in football, but I've been here a long time now. So it obviously has a, has a pull. Yeah, definitely. And that's obviously something that Jay spoke about from Norwich as well, about the, the one club. Um, and he spoke about the benefits of staffing changing, players changing. Yeah. So it is like being as, as much as you're in the same environment, the same building. Um, it is like being at different clubs, isn't it? Sometimes when the coaches Definitely. are yeah. rotating and players are rotating. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I was going to ask for yourself is what do you think the main reason was the transition from physio to sports science or S&C? Because it, that's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because um, there'll be a lot of people out there that are maybe qualifying as physios and see themselves as physios long-term and, it's yeah. just interesting. What what was the reason for that shift? There was, uh, for me, they linked really heavily. So when I started, I was the physiotherapist. We didn't have strength and conditioning coaches. We didn't have sports scientists. It was kind of me, me and the coach. Um, so we, you, you naturally morphed into doing a lot of it, whether you knew it or not at the time. And then as EWP was a big factor in kind of encouraging more staff in from sports science and strength and conditioning. As it grew, sports science grew in football. Um, and so we naturally just morphed into it. So you, you might be taking players through their rehabilitation and their return to play. And things naturally just started falling in your lap about sports science. So I think for me, I was a physiotherapist that was heavily interested in the, the physiology and the, the, for example, training load monitoring, for example, because it formed a part of our rehab. Mm. You might assume that like your first few stages of rehab is predominantly physiotherapy based but then it was nowadays you go right now we're going to pass over to the snc staff the sports scientists at the time it was us doing everything so uh, we probably just naturally morphed into doing it and then the the uh, probably social media research just kind of perpetually grew sports science and strength and conditioning in everyone's minds and it's just something uh, it's just something i kind of felt into really and we were doing it we we're talking more and more about it and then as we got more and more of these staff in it just became more and more part of the program and I can remember uh, very distinctly when uh, we never used to do leg weights you know and then all of a sudden we all kind of got to a point where this is very a long time ago what are we doing like why are we not doing this mm-hmm. um, and then we had to break down some barriers and of coaches perceptions and and we started to introduce things. And as soon as we started to introduce a lot of measures, it then just kind of snowballed and kind of the sports science for me kind of grew and the strength and conditioning grew even more so. 
And then as years go on, you, for, for me, they kind of all morph together as, as, a, as a practitioner. Um, but even from a, a strength and conditioning perspective or a sports scientist, if we take on a, a new member of staff, uh, we expect them to do the whole uh, spectrum of it. So I'd expect a strength and conditioning uh, coach to develop themselves, to understand the intricacies, intricacies of the physiology of um, training loads and um, uh, taking a player through rehabilitation and understanding how they're going to get a player from A to B, as well as doing all the strength and conditioning stuff. I expect them to do the both. Mm. I also expect the same as from physiotherapists. So as a physiotherapist, which they might be very confident in those early stages, I would expect a physiotherapist to be able to do all the end-stage rehab because they sh for me, that's part of the spectrum of, of the rehabilitation. So um, it's something that, for me, it's very interlinked. And I think that practitioners and uh, uh, sports scientists, S&C coaches, fitness coaches should also see it like that as well. Knowing their limits, so knowing where their responsibilities lie, but knowing when and also knowing when to refer to the right people, but they should have an understanding and they should develop themselves to understand the full spectrum. Because when you do, the, the, everything just makes far more sense in your head in terms of how we're going to take a player from A to B. It's not, I'm going to do this two stages and you're going to do the next three. For me, it's actually, let's, let's, let's integrate it and work together. So um, I really enjoy the sports science and SNC side. Um, and as a physiotherapist, I, I'm, uh, I'm not afraid to, to jump in and, and kind of debate the SNC uh, intricacies of, of, of doing certain things in the gym and, um, you know, if, if an SNC coach says to me, all right, we're going to really focus on the Nordics, I'm going to go, why? Why can't we look at the other aspects? Because there's, there's, you know, when we look and we, we delve into different areas of research, there's so many different things we can focus on. Mm -hmm. So for, for me, if we can all have an understanding of the whole spectrum of sports science, strength and conditioning, kind of physiology, really, then as a staff, we're going to grow. Yeah. No, I think it's a great point. And I think that's how football is... Um, has changed in the last few years, isn't it? This sort of integrated approach and the fact that you've had sort of both roles and underline the importance of the understanding of both. I think that's something that's come up time and time again when we speak to people is that understanding, which means that we can integrate well. Um, and I don't know what you think, but I think years ago, it was very much physio. And if there was a, any sort of fitness or fitness coach, they were very separate, weren't they? Same as a yeah. technical coach. Um, they were all separate things, whereas now yeah. we're, we're finding that integrated model. And it's if I think by the sounds of it, clubs like yours, like they're able to sink in really nicely. Yeah, I think it's I think the more you the closer you work together, the more you push each other on as well. So um, we've had it in where our SNC coach will come to us and go, what about this? And we'll go fantastic. In an early stage, what, why don't we try this? And as the physio at the time go, do you know what? I've not thought of that. Mm -hmm. And it, and you you just con constantly are snowballing ideas together, um, and the closer you work, the easier it is. Um, and at the end of the day, it's 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 all focused around the player. So if you are able to work together to push that player on, not necessarily quicker because that might not be the, the the answer, but to make them more robust, and you're doing that together, you know, two heads is better than one, isn't it? So the more ideas we throw about the better it's going to be. And I think, you know, for a department like ours, which is in the east of England, it's not huge amounts of clubs, you know, uh, top sporting organisations around us. You, you have to be able to spur each other on to develop each other. 
Um, so the more we can link between kind of the physio world, the sports science, S&C world, and nowadays it's the nutrition, it's the, 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 the psychology, the, the emotional control, the, the more you link all of that together, the more you develop the player, the more you develop as staff. And that was, that was the next thing we we're going to cover is some of the key challenges that you face in your role, but also being where you are in the, in, in the country. Yeah. You mentioned that you, you're in an area where, um, where we are in the Northwest, there's clubs absolutely everywhere, but where you guys are, there, there isn't, is there? So how does that sort of affect how you guys work and what are some of the other challenges that you face in your role? I think, so probably firstly as a, as a staff member, as I say, CPD opportunities are often pretty limited. So you have to start to think outside the box a bit. COVID in some ways has, has sped up CPD recently. So there's been so much, like yourself, there's been so much stuff out there um, that has allowed people to perhaps sit back and reflect and look at a few different webinars or podcasts or whatever it is. Um, so f- for us, CPD is always a, an issue in the, in the East of England. There's not a huge amount of things organized, but you have to think outside the box a bit. So for us, you know, we linked with the University of Suffolk many years ago. They've, they've been great for us to develop in terms of physiology and working with their SNC students and working with the staff there. Um, but also talking to people at other clubs, you know, and, and trying to give opinions, help, um, have discussions, um, have meetings as you've arranged before as well. So it's, it's a challenge to do the CPD, but we, you have to be proactive with it um, and use the club's opportunities. So, for example, with us, it might be as a physiotherapist going to speak to some of the guys, top surgeons in London and really getting the most out of those experiences almost on the job CPD, really. Mm. Um, but otherwise, for a lot of people, it's when they're looking at, if, for example, if we advertise a, a, a job uh, in the east of England, um, there's not that many people uh, from an SNC perspective or a sports science perspective from base ground here that have had huge amounts of experience. Mm. So we, ha- we, we have to accept that we're not London, which will have an abundance of people, um, or like yourself towards the north that may have an abundance of people. In the east of England, there's not that many people with experience. So for us, we tend to look at it and go, okay, well, how can we help that? Um, and if we're going to take on a member of staff, then that's a, uh, something we'll have to take in mind and go, okay, how can we help develop them and give them more experience as well if they're the right person for the post? Um, as an academy, we're a Category 2 academy, so we're quite limited in our, in our uh, range to, to get players from. But we're actually quite lucky in some sense because, because there's not that many clubs around us. So there's Norwich, which is an hour and a half away, at least. We've got Colchester, which is half an hour down the road. But our, our Suffolk, Paul, we're the only club in Suffolk. So we've actually got a big area to choose players from. So whilst, whilst we're a Category 2 and we may not be able to scour the entire country at young ages, we have quite a lot of players that, that are from the local area. And going back through our, our kind of Ipswich Town's history, our best players are from this area. Mm. Um, we can go back through our Kieran Dyers of the world, the Titus Brambles, the, they're from Ipswich. Mm. And even our current crop of young players, they're probably from within about 40 minutes of Ipswich. So um, whilst it's a challenge as a club um, to kind of reach out and perhaps try and get some of the best players around the country, some of our better ones are actually still local. So we try and develop that and we, 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 we take that and we go, okay, well, this is our, this is all kind of the, this, this is the field of players that we can get. 
let's focus on them then. And, you know, we're quite lucky as an academy in the sense that we, we produce football players um, and uh, talented football players and we'll focus on those. Um, and that's kind of where our focus is as an academy. We will focus on the kind of the gene pool of, of Suffolk and the surrounding areas and we'll develop them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it, it's, it, as a staff member, it has some challenges. As a football club, it definitely has challenges, but we, use, we try and utilise those to the best of our, our, our ability, really. So, But I think overall, you know, if, if, you're, if you're in the east of England, we would encourage people to reach out and, and talk to each other. Um, and particularly even for students, we take a lot of students on. Um, so, for example, we take university work placement students. We don't tend to take um, post-grad interns. Um, because for us, it's about giving them the opportunity to develop so that when they do qualify as a sports scientist or SNC coach, they've got a good amount of experience in, yeah, under, their, under their belt already. That comes from our help with the University of Suffolk as well. Um, and, you know, it's, it, for us, this is all about you, you take what's around you, you make the most out of it. Um, and whilst there may not be an abundance of finances for CBD, things like that, you have to think outside the box to try and develop yourself and utilise the people that are around you. Yeah, definitely. And I, I don't know if it's fair to say that because you don't have that abundance of players in the area, then obviously every academy's focus is going to be on development, isn't it? We're going to look at developing players to get them through the ages and, and make progress. But is it fair to say that because you don't have that abundance of players, there's an, e- there's an even bigger focus on that development because you might not get the big line of players waiting to come in to replace the current ones that you've got. Absolutely. Um, Ipswich Town, we, we produce a lot of players that go into our first team. Um, many years ago, we, we, we set a target of 50% of, of our first team being academy. Um, and currently we do that. We've got a lot of players that feature quite heavily for our first team now. Um, and a number of players that have made appearances and, um, you know, we, I think in the last four seasons or something, we had 35 players make their debut from the academy. So there's a huge amount. And the, the, the pathway for the players and the, the, the attractiveness of Ipswich Town to players is there is the opportunity. Uh, and that is part of it in terms of its location. There is an opportunity. The club will play young players if they're good enough. Um, so in some ways it, that does go hand in hand because there's perhaps a limited uh, pool of players. The importance of developing those players to ensure they play for our first team is really high in this academy. Our average age of debut at Ipswich Town is 17. Oh, wow. um, so that kind of shows you the emphasis that the club places on young players. They may not be playing regularly at 17, some do, but they're having those experiences very early on. So for us as an academy and the academy staff, it's, it's fantastic to see these players develop. We have these players. We're not going to continually recycle and, and write those players go, the next one's coming. We're going to develop those players over a number of years. And you know, very, at the moment, it's quite successful. We're getting a number of players into our first team. And being in League One is helping that, obviously. Um, and you know, if we were a Premier League club, it's definitely different. But... For us as an academy, we're, we're pleased that we're able to push these players through to the first team from a young age and, and, and have the technical and, and hopefully, as, as they continue to develop as men, the physical ability to do it as well. Mm-hmm. And then for coaches as well, because you mentioned before, obviously, about um, there not being 
as high numbers of, of S&C coaches, sports scientists. So for, in that regards, surely the, if coaches are in the area or willing to travel and move, then the, there's going to be more opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And so I think so. And I think if, as a, if you're an S&C coach or a sports scientist and you want to get experience, particularly in the east of England, while, as I say, whilst there may not be numerous hubs of kind of sporting uh, facilities, uh, the opportunity is there if, if approached correctly, really. And you build a rapport with the staff there and, and you actually start to try and put yourself out there and, uh, and gain the experience. Um, I know I've spoken with Mark Armitage at the University of Suffolk, and, and we often talk about the, the, the level of experience and for some people, they kind of get thrust into the sporting world very quickly and they almost exhaust their experience really quickly before they've even got a job. Mm-hmm. They've experienced everything as a student and that has its place. And I think for, for some people, they should look at what's around them. Okay, well, I know, for example, Mark Armitage will um, allow some students to come work at Lowestoft Town, for example, which is a good semi-professional football club. And they gain the experience of working with, with people in that environment before stepping into an academy. And then when they come into the academy, they've got experience of talking to people, they've got experience of talking to coaches and talking to other fitness or strength and conditioning or sports science people and physiotherapists and, and building rapports with people so that when they then come into an environment like, like an academy, they're able to kind of transition even easier. And for us, for me, if, if, I've, if someone comes to me and they're really pushing themselves and they're gaining experience and they're showing the willingness to, to, to learn, that's music to our ears because we know we can start to impart some trust on them and, and, and we're gonna to want to develop them. A number of people that we've had were students um, who started doing experience with us that now work with us full time. So, and that's not just in the strength and conditioning and fitness world, this is physiotherapy as well. So putting yourself out there, having those conversations with people, appreciating that sometimes sport is a volatile world and sometimes it's not on a plate. You have to keep trying to build the relationships. I'll hold my hand up. I might get a couple of emails, but I also get 50 other emails. So you'd have to be patient and you have to persist mm. as well. I've had people who've emailed me and it's the third time that they've emailed me. And I'm like, yeah, I have seen your email. I just haven't had a chance to reply to you. But that persistency can help. So I think if you're in a, a situation where there's East of England, there's not many clubs around, having the willingness to talk to people, create the rapport, um, show the willingness to learn, uh, will stand everybody in good stead. All right. Then there's the debate of should it be paid, should it be unpaid? That's a different story altogether. Yeah. Yeah, and possibly one that we won't dive into right now. <laughs> I think that's a whole that's a whole another whole another podcast. <laughs> no, that's top though. I think that's that's uh, great advice and obviously real life from what you guys have done and, and are doing as well. So no, that that's awesome. And then we're gonna sort of shift gears a little bit onto, and I think this is so relative for this season specifically because of the the way that it's working out, the workload the players are going through, the fixtures. The scheduling is just crazy. Like, and I'm sure anyone working at clubs will appreciate that the, this is a massive um, challenge for this season. Understanding training loads and how that relates to, to injury risk as well. And mm. it's obviously something that everyone's having to deal with, regardless of the level as well, because there's some 
semi-pro clubs that are going to be, hopefully some are going to get going again shortly and, and their fixtures are going to be crazy too. So the full sort of spectrum of football has been hit by this, hasn't they? So what are some things that spring out for you in terms of understanding training loads, how it relates to injury risk and th- things that you've had to put in place? I think it's been really interesting with COVID and uh, I know this is the same in a lot of football clubs is that perhaps our contact time with players is now less because we're trying to minimise contact um, mm. and, and ensure you know, COVID risk stays as low as possible. But even despite that, the principles of your training load and your, your periodization of what you're trying to achieve kind of relatively stays, stays the same. The big thing for us is that we had to choose the big things that we wanted to keep. Um, and we had to ensure that, that that whole thing of bang for buck. We needed to make sure what we're doing is working. Um, and what we did is through the lockdown period, the first lockdown, is that we spent as a staff a huge amount of time analyzing. And we went back through years of data because we had the opportunity to. So we have a couple of months whereby we weren't in the, in the building. So we were able to go back through all of our data so we, we've been quite fortunate for a number of years to use um, Statsports GPS, for example. Um, so we went through all of that information. We went through all of our force plate information and we, and we started to kind of delve deeper than probably what we could do in a normal close season. And it allowed us to then compare that to what our injuries um, uh, and kind of last couple of years worth of injuries that we had. So for us, what we were able to do is before we even came back from uh, for this kind of pre-season post first lockdown is we had a really strong idea of what we wanted to achieve with our training load. And this is where for me, having a the, the strong relationship with the football coaches becomes very important and understanding your role as an, as an academy becomes very important. Um, so what I mean by this is ultimately we're developing football players and we're developing young football players. And what we don't want to do is necessarily put limits on what they can do. For us as a, as a staff, we've, we've had lots of sh- strong discussions and debates about training load. Is it too high? Is it too low? Should we be pushing them harder? Should we be pulling them back? When's the right time to push? When's the right time to pull them back? And ultimately, our philosophy revolves around the football coaches developing the player. So, for example, we might choose on a certain day that we're going to do quite an extensive, you know, high physical day. And the, but the, the, the players are not getting the coaching point. And the coach might decide, I'm going to keep going until I get it because I've got them in the zone. They're, I need them to understand this because we're out here, we're doing it, it's live, it's, it's organic at that point. So as, as a staff, we have to understand, is there a limit? Should we be stopping them at that at a certain point or should we be pulling them back? Or should, is the most important thing at that time to ensure that the, the coaching point and the coaching uh, philosophy is, is, is live, is that the players are developing. If, if we were there going, no, sorry, we're gonna to have to leave the session there. That's no good to the player. That's not developing the player at all. So we have to understand our role uh, in developing the player and there's times to push and there's times to pull. And having that close communication with the, and, and understanding with the coaching staff is very important. So for example, we might choose to have a very low physical day, but actually quite quickly shifts into a high physical day. Um, you know, we're all out there, we're all understanding what's going on. 
and we're going to manipulate that later in, in the week because the coaching aspect at that point is to develop the player um, rather than put a limit on them at that time. Mm. So taking that, what we did through the close season is, is we looked into our data and, and we effectively split our GPS into zones and we, we said scored it effectively from very low to very high. So very much like Laura Bowen's paper where she's got very low to very high in terms of our acute chronic workload ratios and um, accumulated workloads. We did a very similar thing. And what we started to realize, whilst acute chronic ratios was one thing, our, our accumulated workload tells us a hell of a lot more than the acute chronics did. And what we started to find was actually, if we were able to identify the, the training loads that were uh, keeping players in good condition, and we were able to identify if there's any training loads uh, or situations that allow them to be at a higher risk of injury, we could then design our periodization to suit that and ensure that we're able to push the players on. But more importantly, we have bandings. So if a player was suddenly in a, in, a, in a very high banding, we know there's a risk to that, but there's a banding to it. So they might creep into it. If they did an extra 500 meters of high speed running, does it really matter? Or if they did a 500 meters less, does it truly matter at that point? Because there's a banding within what they can achieve. So for example, uh, one of our bits of data was that we looked at um, high metabolic load. So the combination of your high speed running, your sprint distance and your explosive distance. So basically all your high intensity activities. And what we established was, is that in a Z score fashion, if we kept them in a moderate low or a moderate high pretty consistently, which makes obvious sense, then they're going to be in good condition. But what we, when we look deeper, we actually found if we kept them in a three-week um, cycle of that, so if we did moderate high, moderate high, moderate low, or if we did a moderate high, moderate low, moderate high, it didn't really matter. But if we cycled between those two, then what we found is our injury risk just dropped you know, significantly. Whereas if we were having players perhaps in a bit of a low chronic workload and they, then they would jump up to it, or they might be in high, low, uh, high, moderate, low, and then a low, their injury risk was going up and we were finding that there was some obvious uh, situations where if we didn't monitor their training load and keep them within a good bound boundary, then their risk of injury would go up. It sounds very simplistic and it sounds very obvious, but what it allowed us to do was actually really be very confident with the bandings. Um, similarly for total distance, which is an overall volume metric. If we keep them, between a moderate high and a moderate low over a four week cycle, then we know we're gonna be fine. Mm. Uh, ultimately, it allowed us to then identify what, yes, that's our ideal, let's keep everyone in those, those, that kind of periodization of moderate low, moderate high perhaps. But what happens if we go into the high because the coaches have, have, have wanted to get a point? It then allows us to identify, right, actually, if we just drop them down to the lower point of moderate high or lower point of moderate low, then we know we're going to be okay. And then on top of that, it allows you to identify who's in those chronic workloads and who's in, in, in the low chronic workload. So we want to obviously try and get one into a high chronic workload and then stay within that uh, moderate high, moderate low. But what if a player is in a, a, a low chronic workload and then allowed us to identify the boundaries to be able to nudge them up and get them into that high chronic workload. It became quite prescriptive for us. But what it didn't ever do was go, right, he's hit a thousand meter of a high speed running, he's done. What it allowed us to do is give us leeway. And for me, that's where 
working with the football coach, you have to be very organic with it. You have to identify their, uh, their priorities. We have, they have to identify our, our priorities and we have to work together to find, find that mix. What it also showed us was, is that some players can just work at a higher level. They're mm. just athletes. So should we be pulling them down to the, the average? That's unfair on them because we're trying to pull the low ones up to at least the team average. So for us, it's allowed us to identify a, a, a training load that reduces the injury risk, but is specific to the individual. Yeah. So if they, they are persistently chronic in their, in their loading and their outputs are very high, then we know that's their norm and they're staying within those boundaries. If they're low, we've got somewhere to go and we can identify and try and push them up to the, those levels. And then ultimately, you know, that's our extrinsic um, factors that's going to reduce the injury risk as best as we possibly can. On the flip side with young players, it's a learning process. And, you know, you, you get a young 16-year-old that comes into the building full-time for the first time, they're going to make mistakes and their communication may not be on point. So we then use this information to help guide them and for them to be able to identify, I understand why I need to work consistently hard and why I need to consistently put the effort into training sessions because it's going to help my risk of injury as a developing player. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far with Jimmy. I just wanted to give you a quick heads up on some community updates. So if anyone isn't aware, we have an online community, which is a platform for sports scientists and strength and conditioning coaches to go on to network with other coaches, but also to watch some of the fantastic resources that we've got on there. So we have 18 webinars and 10 uh, presentations from our networking meetings that we've held across the UK. Um, so there's all sorts of topics covered on there. As a community member, you can watch those presentations and webinars back on demand, and you'll also get access to future webinars and presentations that will be uploaded to the community. So if you're a member of the community, make sure you log in and check out all the content that's available. If you're not a member, and you want to become a member or see what the community is, is all about, you can go to www.footballfitfed.com, click the community tab at the top, and if you register there and sign up, um, go right the way through the sign-up process, it will give you one month free on the community, so you can check out all the resources that are available. Um, after that free month, it is only £4.99 per month going forward uh, and you'll get access to all the current webinars and presentations, also access to our WhatsApp group where we're constantly sharing different information and also any roles and jobs that are coming up as well. Um, so you'll get access to all of that just for £4.99 per month. So if you're not a member, head over to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab and sign up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Jimmy Reynolds, where we talk about sports science, like limiting if you get into a certain um, distance or speed or whatever it is, and you step in and you're like, right, that player's at that point. We need to we need to drag them out. As from a coach's point of view, like you were talking about, if they've got something in their mind that they want to achieve, and you step in at that point and and add your add your value where you think it's benefiting them, for a coach it's a nightmare, isn't it? Because they yeah. So for you to be reactive and adaptable in that situation and, and understand what they're trying to get and understand the benefits of what they're trying to do as well, 
Well, adapt your practice. That's the real key, isn't it? Yeah. And ultimately, it's all focused around the player. And, this, and that's the most important thing is you have to develop the player. So we have to be confident in, uh, right, we know we're pushing their physical ability. And if that's fine, and we know they're, they're, they're progressing and they're developing, doesn't matter if we slightly go above or slightly go below. If the most important thing at that point is their football ability, for example. Um, so for me, it's about having that open communication with the, the staff and being able to put those points across. But the coaching staff also have to understand the limitations of it. and They can't go hell for leather when it really isn't required. So they it's, it's a, an education process for everyone to understand that. Um, and sometimes when we're talking about the coach taking over and perhaps going, well, they're extreme. They're very rare, by the way. There's extreme examples, but there's a time to coach and there's a time to push them on. There's a time to develop them and there's a time to pull back. So if you have that communication and the understanding, then, then it becomes very easy. Working with experienced coaches, it becomes very easy to identify those times because they will understand, right, I have to get this player. These players are not understanding what I'm saying. This is the most important thing at this point is their football ability. And I have to progress them. And as physical staff, we have to perhaps take a step back at that point rather than let our egos take a, a step forward. Um, so the closer you work with people, the more you understand your data, the more you understand that there's buffers either side of that, and it's not the end of the world if they go above it, mm. it really doesn't matter. You, you can easily manipulate it later in the week or the next week. And the more you communicate those things, the easier it becomes. And, and ultimately, it, it makes the players more robust, it reduces the risk of injury from an extrinsic point of view. I think that is the key. And any coach listening should take that away, that the understanding of other roles is so key, isn't it? And that's why it's interesting for yourself that you've gone from physio into more of a sports science mm -hmm. realm, but also mm -hmm. the, the technical, the tactical side, you have to have an understanding of that as well, don't you? Yeah, hugely. Not, and in huge detail, but enough yeah. to respect that what they're trying to do. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and when you start delving deeper and you start looking at the different types of training and and how they can affect the physical outcome. We would often do, as many clubs do, they'll look at the different types of drills that they put on, for example. And we found one year that our pass, some of our passing drills were some of our most extensive drills. Mm. And we were going, but that's a low technical session. But actually the movement they were doing in it was, was kind of masking. And it was, we were thinking it's very low, but it turns out to be quite high. Um, so you have to understand what, what the coaches want to achieve and then help them. So if they want to do a phase of play, a position specific type of work then you can easily set the work rest ratios and the area sizes and and, and the gps is going to you know tell you magical things about what they've achieved and the coach has got every, every point uh, that they want out of the football side that's the holy grail everyone's working together really nicely but also what we you know going back through that period where we were then able to analyze and go a bit deeper we, we strongly found that our key almost big rocks are really big success uh, that we had over the last couple of years, and this has really come from our lead SNC coach, Harry Gell, was that we did um, sprinting. And we simply just a microdose sprinting. And we did a game day minus one, and we did two 40 meter sprints. And what we found was our high speed um, and uh, sprint distance type injuries. So our non-contact hamstrings, they just didn't occur. And mm. everyone just progressed in their max speed. So that the, the, the saying that speed kills, it literally is it's our biggest rock in our program now. 
Um, we have to ensure that that is part, and the coaches know that now. So game day minus one, we're doing a, we're doing a, a, a max speed session. We're building them up. Um, so Harry, for example, our lead SSC coach, will go through their running mechanics, improve their, their sprinting ability, and then make sure that we're reaching those outputs via the GPS. And when we looked at our injury risks, we got to the, the high speed stuff and the sprint distance stuff, looking at those metrics and were there any, was there any loadings or was there any acute chronic ratios that really found, and it was just low as, there was nothing, oh, yeah. literally, it, unless you were in a really low chronic workload and you'd done a big output and your injury risk was high, everything, it literally just went up oh, and it just went down. And there was just, mm. even if you're working, we found in a very high chronic workload of high speed running and sprint distance, we just had very low risk of injury in non-contact hamstrings, um, adductors, quads. Those we just didn't, and we still don't get them really. Mm-hmm. So that was a big rock for us. Is that we were able to then come into a, a post-COVID pre-season, going right. Here's our bandings of our GPS, and this is what we want to try to do and periodize it. But by the way, we're going to max sprint them, mm-hmm. no matter what. So if we've only got them for a couple of hours a day, in ten minutes you can get your max speed stuff done. Done onto the football. So we were able to kind of microdose what we wanted to achieve um, you know, with the key things that we found. And it's been really helpful. We also found that some stuff was just pointless for us. So a really interesting thing we found was deceleration has told us nothing. Right. Which is really uh, controversial because a lot of people really focus on decelerations in terms of perhaps tendon loading, in terms of um, kind of the harsh explosive distance stuff it didn't really matter for us. And when we looked at our data, whether it be acute chronic loadings of it, whether it be accumulated workloads, it just didn't really tell us anything from an injury perspective. That's not to say it doesn't have its, have its part in, in, in understanding it, but we just don't tend to focus on it too much now. Um, we tend to focus much more on the combination of accelerations, decelerations, and the explosive distance type work. It's the combination of it, rather than just focusing purely on decelerations accelerations told us a little bit more um but for us actually it's 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 everything joined together in terms of like a high metabolic load all of your explosive um, explosive work put together i think that's really interesting both what what you've taken and and ran forward with post well if we are post lockdown but (laughs) but um on reflection but also like you say I, i think it's really important at that time to um critically analyze what you're doing and why you're doing things. And it's really interesting, isn't it? With the deceleration side of things. Um, but when you were talking about that, it makes sense that if you use that integrated approach where you put in axles with decels, with change of direction, that's what we do on the pitch. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah, they, it jumps out and makes sense, but yeah, I've, it might be the, it might be as well that that's, you know, in their strength and conditioning loading, they're coping really well with it. They've got great, um, eccentric braking force or something like that that allows them not to have that problem at this club. It could be the type of training at this club that mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're very small game orientated. So there's, there's already a lot of those things. They're conditioned to it, perhaps. That's our club. That doesn't, uh, that certainly yeah. doesn't mean it's happening elsewhere. Um, and that kind of leads me on to a really good point is we analyzed it from our club uh, in terms of our training sessions. So for example, our under 23s have changed managers recently. Kieran Dyer has now come in with Terry Butcher to do our under 23s and it's a slightly different type of training. Mm. So that means that actually it's going to be a slightly different output again. So Mm. we have to understand that and accept that there might be some limitations to that or that we might have to change how we're monitoring it as well. 
because the players might be doing consistently different movements than they've done before. Really, all of it comes down to kind of understanding what you want to try and achieve and having that communication with the coaching staff. And that's something that we're, we're constantly trying to push. And there is going to be debates. And this is, again, I'm starting to rant. <laughs> Ultimately, there will, there will be a debate. And I think debate is healthy. And if you're in a, an environment where it's, it's very nice and everyone's open to communication, that's great. You have to disagree with each other every now and then, and you have to for the purpose of developing the player. And that's something that, that has occurred through, over a number of years here. And, and our philosophy might change, but why? Why are you now changing to do it this way? And because we've developed and we've understood the data more here, and with the coaching staff, they might turn around and go, I don't agree. Mm. And we have to have that ability to have that conversation. Um, and sometimes, as a staff, I've certainly done it, I've gone, do you know what? I think you're right, actually. Mm. And, you know, I was going down one path and they've steered me on another path. Mm. That's the, that is the nature of working with developing players. Every player is different. Every coach's philosophy might be different. So we have to have that constant push and pull between people for the, the, the primary purpose of developing the player for the football, for the first team, for example, as it is here. I think that, that information is top. And I think coaches should take out of it that, analyzing your work and your practice is really important but as you've rightly pointed out a lot of what you spoke about is very specific to your club and your findings so it's not to say that that's going to be the same at other clubs and it'd be great to get conversations going people if people reach out about their their uh, findings on deceleration or whatever it is like that's what we need isn't it we need these conversations to get going um, yeah. rather than them taking what you've just said and being like, well, that, that's the same as my club. Well, it might not be. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I think we get so bogged down in, in the detail of it that sometimes if you take a step back and you, you analyze it as a whole, as a whole, then what you find is that the, the, the data becomes far more easier for you to look at. So that's what we found. We had the opportunity. We took the opportunity to delve a lot deeper and then we stepped back from it and we went, well, actually, this gives us a really nice periodization model, allows us to have leeway within the program. But we know that that leeway is not going to create too much of a, a jump in injury risk or, you know, and for our staff, it becomes far more easier to understand. And, you know, we might say, OK, we want the next two weeks, we're going to work very high in these areas and then we're going to taper off. But coincidentally, a game gets put in, suddenly there's increased demands that week. OK, well, how does that where are we in terms of our injury risk? Is that a concern or not? And then you use that information to help guide the coaching staff, the players, and everyone, you know, hopefully progresses onwards. It's not always easy. And it, you're constantly having these discussions um, and we constantly are doing that with our coaching staff. So having that ability to understand your data, but still push and pull away from it is important for me. Yeah, brilliant. And just before we move into the quick fire, because I, I think we could talk all day on this sort of no. stuff. So I'll move it on to uh, the next bit, just before quick fire. One thing that you sent over when we were talking about um, some topics to discuss was um, having a family and working in football. And I think this is always a really good topic to cover because there'll be loads of coaches that have got families that are currently working in football or looking to have families um and, and still working football. And it is, it's a battle, isn't it? It's a tough, you're constantly trying to um, measure things up and give enough time to both. So it'd be really interesting to get your point of view on the sort of challenges in terms of time and, and everything that you yeah. face. 
I think even before before I had children, uh, my wife uh, she used to call herself a football widow um, <laughs> because of the nature of football. It's it's a harsh beast at times, it, it, but it's also quite addictive. So I remember when I first started, uh, you were pretty much in seven days a week, and I think as the years have gone on, that's that's improved, and people are understanding now staff's mental well-being is, is of utmost importance so people are starting to understand that from an academy point of view as well and even from a first team perspective there has to be downtime and there has to be an opportunity to step away from the football club because it, it, it can consume your life so for me when i've had when i well when my first daughter arrived it was so obvious that i had to change how i worked because uh you're managing staff. There's, there's an academy, there's stuff going on during the day, there's stuff going on in the evening, there's stuff on Saturdays, there's stuff on Sundays. So you have to prioritize what you're doing. And for me, what happened was, is I, I very quickly realized that if I prioritize my key things uh, and set myself the targets every day, what I was doing in a 12 hour day, I suddenly did an eight mm-hmm. because I had a, a life that I wanted to be away from the football. I had my family at home that I wanted to spend time with. Uh, I'm not afraid to say I will spend as much time with my children as I possibly can because they're of utmost importance to me. Mm. So what I would do is I'll prioritize what I'm doing at the club and I will, I will get, it's amazing what happens when you have children, when you suddenly realize you can cope on two hours worth of sleep and still do a full day's work. (laughs) You you suddenly recognize that you're far stronger than you think and you start getting things done a lot quicker. Um, And there will be a point where I get everything I need to be, uh, completed that day done and I suddenly realized I'm doing it far quicker than I was doing before um, so you start to think like that you start to speed up your work processes you start to identify what's important what's not what's taking time up what doesn't need to take time up what needs to be delegated as a, as a member of the management um, and for me working in football with children it is tough um, and uh, there was a period where I worked with the first team and I was traveling um, away with the first team for a period of time. And that was really tough for me because all of a sudden you were away a lot and my family found it very difficult. So from an academy point of view, that's why I stepped back into the academy. You have to understand your, um, your working schedule and stick to it as best mm. as you can um, and be able to walk out the door and switch off. Um, and yes, you still get the text messages, the WhatsApps, the phone calls, perhaps when you're not there. But if you can have the mindset where I leave the training ground gates and I'm switching off and I'm devoting that time to my family, then it, it's, it's going to be beneficial. Um, so it's, it's hard, but I think if you approach it in the right manner, whereby you, you, you prioritize, you, you organize yourself and you, you become more efficient, then it can work quite easily. I think that's another lesson of COVID. That's what COVID's taught yeah. us, isn't it? That, yeah, we could be working 12, 13, 14 hours a day, or like you say, we could be productive and get tasks done. And it's very different, isn't it, to measuring time or measuring productivity? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, f- for me personally, we opened a, a private physiotherapy practice over a year ago. And what we, we found was we then had to do that even more. Yeah. So whilst I'm still full-time in the football club and I, and I, I do um, some hours in my, in, in this practice and my wife does a, a hell of a lot as well, but we have two young children, they're two and four years old. So we then have to arrange our time to ensure that, you know, the, the, the girls are being looked after um, or that we're spending enough time with them as a family so that we don't get, you know, uh, 
pulled into kind of never being at home and passing ships. Um, so it's tough, but I think as you get older and more experienced, you recognize that you can very easily organize your time far better. Um, and you also recognize that you probably spend far more time on your phone than you ever need to. Yeah. And social media can take over your life. And actually, there's a time to put it down and focus on your children and focus on your family and your wife and your other halves. And you know, that, that, it's, it's been a, a good lesson for us over the last kind of what, four years of having a family, really. I think you just pointed out the one thing that I've tried started doing more is, is putting the phone down. And then putting it to one side and focusing more and being present. So is, is that something that you've, a change that you've made, you think? Or is there something else that sort of springs out of a, a, a difference or a change that you've made? Um, it, it, it can still be a struggle, the social media side, because I think the Twitter or Instagram, there's so much stuff out there that uh, I think for a lot of people, they feel like they're, they're missing out. But um, something myself and my wife would do, uh, particularly in a close season, we'd often... Um, or if we went on a holiday, we would have a ban on social media yeah. and we would have periods of, of being away from it. And what you very quickly realize is you waste a hell of a lot of time on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you pick up the phone just because it's there, not because you genuinely want to look at it. So for, for me, it is about recognizing why you're looking at things like social media. And, and uh, so we mentioned beforehand, like Twitter for me is actually a great CPD. Um, there's so much information out there on it that you can use it to your advantage. Um, but I'm, uh, I don't particularly post too much now, but what I tend to do is like a hell of a lot. And I think to myself, I'll go back and look at that later. And as I say, I've probably got 3000 likes I've never looked back at. <laughs> but what it might do is trigger something in you, which is fantastic and, it, and you, you delve into it. But other times you'll sit on something like Instagram and you flick away and an hour goes by and you think, what am I doing? What a waste of time. So. I think if you can recognize it and understand it and, and start to self-reflect and, and understand what you shouldn't, you know, what, what's good for you and what's not, then I think, you know, it becomes far easier to, to manage your time. Yeah. Brilliant. So we'll move on to some quick fire, some quick fire questions. So I'm to nervous. start with, <laughs> to start with, who are some biggest influences on your career so far? Oh, uh, that's a tough one. Um, so f- f- for me as a physiotherapist, I had a really, uh, this was about 2010, uh, I went on a workshop with Peter O'Sullivan. So Peter O'Sullivan is actually a, a physiotherapist that works in chronic low back pain, funnily enough. Um, and I had kind of an epiphany moment whereby uh, we were looking at how people move and uh, changing people's behaviors and changing how people move when they're in pain. And for me, uh, it was a really key moment in my development, uh, development as a physiotherapist, but also working in a sporting world. Because what we were able to do is change how people move, change how they feel pretty quickly when we understand how they move and the psychosocial uh, things around them. And this is relevant in the, in the football and the sporting world because it's no different. We still get people that come in to, to our world who move perhaps how they shouldn't, or they, they, they show areas of weakness or they show areas of altered movement control. But the reason for that is actually their understanding of it or their perception of what they should be doing, their perception of normal. So for me, a big influence was, was, was these, this kind of research based around Peter O'Sullivan was actually, you've got someone who perhaps is moving differently and is actually now become a problem 
and the way they're moving because they think it's right is wrong and that's what's causing their problem and when you take it into the sporting world and you take someone through rehabilitation you, you start to, to to use that information and you start to play with movement you start to teach them whilst their brain thinks movement is only this it's this so it, it can be a huge amount of movement that we want to teach them so for me a big influence was working with people in other specialities that could then link into uh, the, the physiotherapy, the strength and conditioning world. And a, an example of that is I will take someone who perhaps will be uh, on a long-term rehabber or a, uh, even an acute one. And we might go in the gym and start doing some S and C type work, which might be low load. It might not be particularly heavy, but what we do is we start to change how they move and we focus on the small intricacy. Moves. And I don't set limits on, on what they can do. So it's not 10 reps and then you're done three sets. All of a sudden, it's no, you keep going, keep going, right? Now you're getting it. Now let's move on. Let's make it look better. Yeah. And before you know, you've done an hour's worth of even the same type of movement. It's not fatiguing. It's not damaging them in any way because we're working hard. What you're doing is you're reinforcing movement and you're reinforcing their, their ability to move uh, deep within their brain, you know, uh, looking at all your cortical tracks and really thinking about kind of developing uh, the brain. So for me, it was taking people like Peter O'Sullivan's work which is a completely different field mm. and applying it into our, our world really. Um, and for me, another area is, is really the development of social media and what's out there. And there's some good guys on social media that share all of the information that, and it makes you think, and that's a, that's a big thing for me is actually sometimes you might just be having to look through Twitter and someone retweet uh, something, a new bit of research and it just tweaks you and you go, right, okay, I'm going to look into this a little bit more. So, for me, overall, taking other people's specialities, looking and, and, and delving into the human body in different ways, applying it in your area and exploring it. Real. Next one, I think this is my favourite one because it always makes people a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> what's, what's your biggest strength as a coach? Um, probably my ability to talk to them. Um, as a physiotherapist, uh, in a football club, but also outside of a football club, is that you get to know the person very quickly. And that's really important. And within a football environment, uh, as a physiotherapist, you often sit closer to the player than you do the coach. Um, and we always used to say, uh, if it's town, there's a coach's table, there's a player's table, table. We kind of sit somewhere in between because you have to be able to work with each individual. So, a coach may be able to lay down the law and have a very strict um, process with the player. We can have that, but we also have to have the interpersonal skills and the closeness with the player to be able to de develop them. So over the years, it's something that I particularly enjoyed and, you know, I've enjoyed it going back into the private physiotherapy practice is that closeness with, a, with that person and the interpersonal skills that that brings and being able to break down barriers and just to probe at the right point and question at the right point or pause at the right point, let someone speak, let them give you your story, um, sorry, their story, and you, you formulate um, a good relationship with someone. So for me, that's that's something that I think is probably my, my biggest strength. And it's not just with players, it's with staff as well. So uh, in a physiotherapy world, they always used to say, you've got to be the friendliest with your admin staff because they're the people that look after your diary. So you have to have this relationship and be very interpersonal with people. So probably for me, that's probably my biggest strength. 
Now, this might be a tough one to narrow down because you mentioned a little bit about it already, but is there any CPD that sort of stands out for you that you've done recently that sort of has been most impactful, whether that's like a webinar, whether it was a podcast, a blog, an article, some research, like, is there anything that sort of stands out for you? It's a tough one. Nah, I thought um, it would be. <laughs> that, that's a tough one. Um, do you know, through lockdown, I thought there was some fantastic stuff out there. Uh, and there's a lot of webinars. And I think there was some about old performance. They were looking at the real details of perhaps force plate data or looking uh, much deeper into the, the Nordboard type work. So, so for me, I think well, the most impactful stuff for me recently is, the, is probably combining all of them. I'm kind of not really giving you an answer, am I? <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's combining all of them. So you take the information. So for example, I, you know, Dan Cohen did one on Vol Performance, looking at the real intricacies of force plate data. And, and I have a, a, an affinity with our force plates here because I like to use it within the rehab. So I, I took that information. I took bits of research uh, with that and I kind of amalgamate it all together and you know formulate kind of my own... Uh, opinion on it and that's not giving you a direct answer i know but for me it's, it's a bit of everything but there are some fantastic things out there now uh and i think covid has really uh pushed on exponentially and i do think if you have the time to be able to sit down and look at these webinars and uh courses and cpd and things like that and then reflect on it and ensure that you use it um because you can watch 100 webinars and forget all of them you know within mm. 100 days um for me, it's about taking it, understanding it, delving a bit deeper with it, playing with it, making your own opinion on it, choosing to keep it, choosing to go, actually, that's not for me. For me, that's part of the whole process. Real. And then last couple, what do you think the most important or one of the most important traits to uh, is to have as a, of a coach? Okay. Um, I think you have to be quite humble. And what I mean by that is I think you have to be able to understand your limitations and you have to be quite reflective upon those. So if you understand uh, that you need to develop your ability to communicate or you need to um, build closer relationships with people or you need to delve and focus a bit more on your professionalism or something like that, that is probably one of the, the, the biggest traits. If you can develop that, I think that's an exceptional quality. And by the way, it's something that takes years and years of, of work. But having that self-reflective uh, habit is, is arguably one of the most important things to allow you to develop. And this isn't just for, for practitioners, it's for players as well. The most self-reflective players are arguably some of the most successful players. So, uh, and it's the same in any big business. The most self-reflective people, the ability to identify their strengths and weaknesses and, and uh, act on them, uh, are arguably some of the most successful people. So, but alongside that, it's, it's being willing to accept those as well. So if someone is saying to you that, I think you haven't done that very well, it's being able to understand that and reflect on it. And it's not personal. It's, you have to be able to progress yourself and criticism is part of that. So for me, it's about being humble, being self-reflective, uh, understanding your limitations and doing something about it. And I think you might have answered this in, in that last um, question, but is there anything that you'd change in terms of the most important trait for a player or anything additional that you'd add for a player? Um, something that we've spoken about heavily here is 
ensuring good relationships. So for me, whilst being self-reflective and their ability to understand their strengths and weaknesses, it's also important for the, the, the player to be able to use that, but also with their parents, uh, perhaps with their agents uh, and with the coach. And there has to be this relationship. So we talk here about a thing called the trilogy, which is player, parent, coach. And actually, if there's that ability to reflect and everyone be able to reflect and the player can develop. And that often comes from the player being able to, to be self-reflective. But an, a player's ability to be self-reflective is influenced by the parent. So if, mm-hmm. if the parent isn't self-reflective, then often the child may not be. So mm-hmm. we have to be able to have this ability for player, parent, coach, player, parent, staff member, player, parent, agent, staff, all of us to be working together. And if we can foster that self-reflection and that kind of self-efficacy from that, then you're going to have a successful player. Brilliant. Jimmy, this is absolutely class. There's so much. Uh, it's just packed full of quality information, real uh, relatable stuff. I think for anyone working in the academy level, first team level, but all different levels as well. So thank you very much for giving up the time and coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my ramblings. No, superb. And just, do you want to just give, is there anywhere that if people want to reach out, if they've got any questions about anything, is there anywhere that you direct them? Um, so I'm on pretty much everything in Instagram and Twitter, uh, Mr. Jimmy Reynolds. Um, uh, I have got a LinkedIn uh, page, of, uh, as even you found on my responses on it can be pretty sluggish. Um, <laughs> and, and similarly on email, but the best thing's probably Twitter or Instagram. So by all means, uh, welcome for any conversations. If, if And likewise, I'll, I'll put it out there as we often do. If there's anyone in, in kind of the East, East Anglia region that wants to discuss and chat about things, then we're, we are open to it. Um, but just pester me if I don't reply. It's the wonderful world of sport can keep you busy. Brilliant, mate. Well, really appreciate you giving up your time and best luck for the rest of the season. And we'll stay in touch. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you, mate. Thank you for listening to episode 114 of the podcast and big thank you to Jimmy for giving up his time as well to come on the podcast and discuss all the topics that we've gone through in this episode. I Please share this episode, so I do ask that you share it to as many people as possible, anyone that you think will benefit from the episode. So tag us on Twitter, get it out on your Instagram stories. Um, I really would appreciate you sharing it with as many people as possible. You can go and give Jimmy a follow He's on Twitter at Mr. Jimmy Reynolds and Reynolds is R-E-Y-N-O-N-O-L-D-S. And takeaways for me, initially, I think some of the first ones that stand out are where he mentioned about debate being healthy and disagreement being good. I think they're, they're topics that have come up on previous episodes that it is a healthy thing to be able to have debates and drop the ego and be able to discuss things and come to sort of rational conclusions and give your opinion, but not sort of be rubbed up the wrong way when people disagree with you because we all have license to disagree and agree with other practitioners and it's only healthy for what we do and how we progress. Um, He spoke about the link from physio to sports science. Um, And another big thing for me was that during covid the time that they had to um, do an analysis on what they were doing in their program with the players. And that led to obviously sticking with certain aspects of the program, but then that led to removing certain aspects of the program as well. And I think this year, 
whether you know it or not, I think this has been a year that has definitely given us the opportunity to do that and analyse what we're doing. So I think that was a really good takeaway for me um, that Jimmy was talking about. So as always, it'll be great to hear what you took away from the podcast. And again, please give it a share. I really do appreciate everyone sharing the podcast, but also reaching out and giving your feedback on certain episodes and Like I say on a few podcasts, if you do have any guests that you want to hear on the podcast or any specific subjects that you want us to cover, please reach out on social media or on our email, mail at footballfitfed.com because I'd love to hear from you and we'll try and make it as specific to what you guys want as possible. But as always, big thank you to you guys for listening to the podcast and for sharing it and doing everything you do to support it. And I'll speak to you again next week in episode 115.